Welcome to Spark.Grow, a series of conversations on topics that are critical to companies and people that want to grow, scale, and maintain their performance. Spark.Grow is brought to you by Ann Arbor Spark and hosted by Dave Haviland, founder of Fimation based in Ann Arbor. This conversation was recorded in the podcast studios of the Ann Arbor District Library. Now we'll turn it over to Dave Haviland for this conversation. All right, welcome to our inaugural episode of the Spark.Grow podcast. I'm here. I'm Dave Haviland. I am a strategy advisor and business coach um, based here in Ann Arbor. And I'm here with Ari. Ari, do you just go by one name, like the soccer players now, Uh, or or do we actually use your last name too? You you can use my last name, but it's very hard to pronounce, and so Ari works because Uh, (laughs) there's not that many. So (laughs) I think half the world thinks my last name is Zingerman anyway. (laughs) So appreciate you being here. Um, Ari has brought with him the four books that he's authored, um, all of them uh, Zingerman's Guide to Better Leading. Is that right? Uh, to Good Leading. Good yeah. Leading. There's actually more books, too, but in okay. this series, I brought this one, these, these today. So, Do you have a topic that you covered in those that's your favorite topic? I don't know. It's my favorite. I mean, I think it's, it's uh, I, I guess, the overarching theme for me would be helping me and then people who read them understand that there's a lot more than just sort of this singular answer that everybody seems to be looking for uh, and and to understand that life and the world and business because they're part of life and the world uh, is complex and that there's a lot of factors that are playing into things. Um, your most recent is about beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, what inspired you to write about that, and and any wisdom from that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's a big book, so hopefully I can share <laughs> something. Uh, you know, it sounds funny because I've been writing and teaching, and you know, through Zing Train and around the country, teaching about business for a long time now, as as you have. Uh, but I really never thought about beliefs and the importance that they have in our lives when I talk about beliefs, I should qualify that I'm not talking about religion, sports, and politics, which are the three things that everybody likes to talk about, uh, but no one ever changes their mind about. But uh, I'm talking more about beliefs in the context of what one believes about human beings, what one believes about themselves, about business, about pricing, about the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. And what triggered it, to answer your question directly, is uh, I was reading Bob and Judith Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T's book, Transformed. Uh, They're in Chicago, and they have the Wright Institute. I've known Bob for quite a while. Uh, It's an interesting story, which is in the back of part three of the book, how I know him, but we won't get into that right now. But anyway, uh, in there, they have this little self-fulfilling belief cycle, which Bob says he can't remember who taught it to him, so I don't know who to give ultimate credit, but Mm. I'm giving him the credit because I learned it from him. But anyway, it's a self-fulfilling belief cycle, which is essentially what it sounds like, which is kind of blew my mind. Uh, essentially, I'll, I'll sort of draw it verbally uh, on the podcast, but we, we all have beliefs uh, about everything. And we got beliefs about people, we got beliefs about ourselves, about what a you know piece of clothing should cost, what a cup of coffee should cost, what blueberry buckle should be like, whatever it might be. Uh, based on our beliefs, we all take action. Based on our actions, the, those people around us uh, form their own beliefs. In business, it could be your employees, your partners, your customers. Uh, Based on their beliefs, they in turn take action. And this little cycle pointed out that a good 95% of the time, their action reinforces our original belief. Mm -hmm. 
Hence, you and I and everybody listening, we are all basically creating a huge part of the life that we have uh, for better and for worse with what we believe. So this little cycle kind of blew my mind and I did uh, the only thing that history majors really know how to do, which is study. And so I started studying and then it blew my mind more. And then I studied more about beliefs and it blew my mind more. And three or four years later, I had a 600 page book <laughs> and uh, I haven't really stopped studying since. So it's, it's very, very interesting. How does a leader use that belief um, concept yeah. in, in the work that they do? Well, there's a whole uh, range of ways, which is why the book got so long. But uh, I mean, number one was the, the realization, which I really never had given any thought to, which is just that we're not born with beliefs. Hmm. They're, they're created. They're not genetic. They're all learned, right? And, and so uh, because they're all learned, then they can be changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you understand the self-fulfilling belief cycle and you understand that beliefs can be changed, then you start to put those two together. It becomes clear that if we're holding beliefs that are leading us through that self-fulfilling cycle to futures and present situations that we don't like, then one of the answers is not to blame the other people, but to actually reflect inwards and look at what our beliefs are and to realize that we might change a lot around us by changing what we believe so that that's a really big way uh, another way is that we teach this now to to our staff so that they start to realize the power of their own beliefs and what's happening uh, and and then in a in a broad sense I started to look at uh, beliefs a couple things metaphorically one is I start to look at them as the root system of our lives uh, because although you can't see them, it's 100% guarantee that everything that comes up above the surface is always correlated with what's happening underneath, and I think that that's true. Uh, and, and then I started to, to, to separate beliefs into three broad categories, so negative beliefs, neutral beliefs, and positive beliefs. And if beliefs are the root system, then you don't have to be a farmer to figure out that negative beliefs are always going to create negative outcomes. Uh, neutral beliefs don't do much, and positive beliefs create positive outcomes. And that it's totally impossible, according to nature, to get a positive outcome from a negative belief. So a negative belief could be the belief that an employee is doomed to fail. It could be that your partner is a jerk. It could be that customers are out to take advantage of you. It could be your vendors out to take advantage of you. Those are all negative beliefs. And uh, so then out of that came a whole essay in the book, which was like, well, if we want to create a positive, lasting ecosystem of an organization, you have to base it on positive beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's the only way to do it. And so, you know, and I, I mean, I've spent most of my working life learning to be more positive, but even still, I caught myself with negative beliefs and then start started to work to change those. So, I, I mean, those are in a nutshell, but all of those things have had a huge impact. So much of leadership is also often talked about kind of top-down command mm -hmm. and control. Mm -hmm. But when I think of Zingerman's, I think of yeah. more democratic environment. Yeah. Um, how do you strike the balance in creating those beliefs between the leader doing work on him or herself yep. to understand their beliefs and the, and the community as a whole developing yeah. them? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, I, you, I think you know, but I studied the anarchists here at U of M. Uh, and I didn't really do anything with it. I just sort of liked it. And then when I graduated with my history degree, which there's nothing you can do with a history degree, which was not a shock. I knew, I knew that I was supposed to go back and get more degrees, which I never did. But 
anyway, I ended up getting a job. It's funny that we're sitting here at the library today because we're mm, a block and a half or two, two and a half blocks, I guess, from where I got my first job wow. in food, which was washing dishes at Maud's, which is, I don't know what's in there now, but, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then we're probably four or five blocks from where I studied at the Labadee collection on the seventh floor of the graduate library studying the anarchists. So yeah. anyways, uh, I, I think that both Paul and I in our own ways uh, have always had the belief, uh, which is for me rooted in the anarchist stuff in hindsight, I hadn't thought about it, but which is just that everybody's a smart, intelligent, creative human being and that there's no correlation between hierarchical position and ability. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mean people who've earned positions haven't done a lot of work mm -hmm. but it doesn't make you smarter mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you know more it just means you know different things and and so I think from the beginning instinctively is probably the wrong word but just because our beliefs led us to do it we just always treated everybody like they were a smart caring mm -hmm. human who knew stuff we didn't know and that we were going to need their help to be successful and I think that started when it was just me and Paul and two employees and now today 36 years later, we have systems and recipes and processes to make that all happen. Uh, how do you strike the balance? I think there is no perfect balance. It's always kind of out of balance. But uh, one of the, the big metaphor of the new book on beliefs is the idea of business like an ecosystem. And in every ecosystem, there's always problems. Uh, but in a healthy ecosystem, the health far overcomes uh, the disease and so there's always problems but the problems go away relatively quickly through uh, healthy responses of the ecosystem whereas in an unhealthy ecosystem the problems take over quickly and that's true in business too. So is the job of the leader then in that environment to identify the problems? Uh, the, I think the job of the leader is to attempt imperfectly to create a healthy ecosystem so in the mm -hmm. same way that a like uh, a, a farmer a sustainable farmer you know that's their work I mean it's they're they're not creating the plant I mean the plants coming from the seed but uh, their job is to make sure the soil is healthy and then to help manage you know what happens in nature not to dominate nature but to work alongside nature to try to bring positive outcomes what, how does that translate to maybe more traditional business concepts of strategy, marketing? You know, what yeah. what is what is a healthy e building a healthy ecosystem? Look well, like? I, I think all of those things are part of the work. I mean, without question, you know, just like the quarterback has to pass the ball or whatever. But I I, I think a quarterback who's not healthy emotionally, who's not grounded and who doesn't have the skill set won't do well. And somebody with the technical skill set but not the emotional grounding will end up having a hard time. Mm -hmm. I think that's true in sports, it's true in music, it's true in business leadership. So uh, I, I think all of those things come into play. Um, but really, you know, our work is to try to create a healthy setting where people, you can bring the creativity out of the people that's already in there. And then to help design, as we get bigger, to help design systems uh, and processes that are going to ensure as best we can that we get to good outcomes. I would say one of the things that my clients struggle with the most is dealing with underperformers. Mm -hmm. So so how do, how do you like to deal with underperformers? How do you recommend people deal with underperformers in that environment? Of, yeah. It sounds like first you're trying to solve it with more positive beliefs. Yeah. But sometimes that's not enough. No, it's it, positive beliefs doesn't mean there's no problems. It just means that you have a positive belief about, about the, the problem. problem. Yeah. 
uh, which is that it can be resolved or it can be improved or, you know, that, that we don't assume the worst about the, you know, because if you sit in most organizations, you're going to hear stuff like, well, clearly they're not committed. They don't care. They're, you know, it's like I actually don't know if they're committed. <laughs> and in the end of the day, it's not really the issue is not whether they're committed. The issue, to your point, is are they doing the work at a, at a level that's good for us? There's no easy way. I mean, I, I think different people benefit from different responses. I don't think it's ever been my favorite part of the work, but it can be just asking good questions. How do you think you're? How do you think you're doing, or what do you believe about your current job? A lot of times, people know they're not doing a good job. Sometimes, mm-hmm. just from good questions, you find out they don't really want to be there, and you know, then it's just working together to get them on the way to do something else. Are the are the management practices consistent within all of the different companies in your community? And the reason I was thinking that is, do you have performance conversations weekly, monthly, or whatever? Yeah. So are they consistent? Yes and no. Uh, you know, like all cultures, you, you want uh, – all, all coherent cultures, one, I believe, wants to have enough consistency that of values, beliefs, vision, and process that it holds together. That said, if you require everyone to follow exactly the same thing from the center, then we, we sort of dis – regard or, or fail to honor the, the uniqueness of the situation in which they're working. So I think for us, it's, you know, yes, we teach all this stuff. Yes, each of us, me included, varies in our performance every day. Uh, and, and yes, different managers rely on different of the systems. But I think the point is to have multiple systems so that people can pull the one that's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. How, how are your systems different today than they were five years ago when you were smaller? Yeah. Um, well, I think going back to 36 years, we didn't really have any systems. Yeah. Uh, in, in part three of the book, which is on managing ourselves, there's an essay that references Edgar Schein, who you've probably read his work. He was, as far as I know, one of, he's still going and one of the first people to really teach and write and talk about organizational culture and its importance. And he wrote an article that I read in like the mid-90s that kind of blew my mind and really altered, in hindsight, my beliefs about leadership. And so the essay in part three is sort of my cover version of his mm-hmm. original essay. But basically what he said is that, you know, in the in the leadership, scholarly leadership world, there's a lot of argument about what's the right style and what's the wrong style of leadership. And he said basically that you guys are asking the wrong question. He said, the question is not what's right and what's wrong. The question is, what's the appropriate style of leadership for the stage of development at which the organization is at? And he pointed out what is incredibly obvious once he pointed it out, which is that as the organization grows and develops, we need different styles of leadership, Mm -hmm. right? So the first stage is a startup. And when Paul and I started the Delhi in 1982, you know, it's a startup. You're anybody who's listening that's been part of one knows what the drill like it's you're going to change your mind every two days you need to because what you thought would be great sucks mm-hmm. <laughs> that you mm-hmm. thought would be barely important turns out to be your biggest selling thing and so you're changing quickly but as you grow then uh, the second stage is is what he calls building and so in their cultural development becomes more important so hiring like-minded people who share your values and beliefs so that they make comparable or compatible decisions but then the third stage uh, he, he calls mature, uh, and, and that's where really systems and processes become really critical, and hiring expertise becomes really critical. So 
the point of his article is that if we had hired the expertise and spent all this time designing systems as a startup, we would have gone broke right. in three months. On the other hand, if you try to run uh, an organization like ours with 700 people with no processes and systems, it's going to be a disaster because it's all leader-reliant and people are making decisions in the moment. There's no consistency. There's no development of people, et cetera. Is there, is there one system or process? I'm sure they're all important, mm -hmm. but is there one that stands out for you as the most important now where you are? Well, again, I, I don't know that there is a most important. I think that's part of my, you know, both the anarchist stuff and, and the focus on nature as a metaphor. So in nature, there is no most important mm -hmm. thing, and there's no hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And hierarchy, although we're all trained, to, or most Americans are trained to think hierarchically, even though we don't know it, uh, I think it's actually dangerous because we're looking for the most important thing when, in fact, everything makes a difference and everybody makes a difference. That said, I mean, there's a whole mess of different things that we use. So our visioning process, which actually, I mean, we could do a whole hour just on that, mm -hmm. but came out of U of M in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s with a guy named Ron Lippett who did the original work, uh, Servant Leadership, which came from Robert Greenleaf. Uh, we're using more... Uh, lean and process management, which, you know, comes out of Toyota and Deming before that. Uh, we do a ton with customer service. Obviously, we are open book management, which came from Springfield, Missouri, from the Springfield remanufacturing folks. I mean, and, and that's only the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you asked about five years ago. I mean, all the stuff in the new book around beliefs, I didn't even know, let alone teach. There's also essays in there on hope in the workplace and how to build it and how to avoid crushing it. So we started an internal class on, on that. Uh, Spirit of Generosity, I wrote about in here, same thing. So these are all things that we just try to keep getting better all the time. How often do you, um, is, th is there a heartbeat that you follow for the strategy of the organization, monthly, quarterly, yearly? Well, we do, an so we write a vision, long-term vision as we need to, but generally it's been a 10 to, f I mean, we never wrote one in the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, that said, there's an essay in part one of the book called 12 Natural Laws of Business. The first, they're basically my belief is that all healthy, successful organizations are living in harmony with those natural laws, mm -hmm. even though they don't know what they are, they're doing them. And the first one is that you have a vision. Uh, and I think that's true of anybody you've ever interacted with, anybody who's listening that started something. I mean, in their head, they had a vision. And that's what we had. Uh, we didn't write it down the way we do now. We just had it in our head and when you're small and you're a startup you're standing right next to everybody so you can sort of grab them by the shirt sleeve figuratively or or literally <laughs> and and get them back to going to where you want to go um but we learned the visioning process from stash kazmierski in in 93 uh he had learned it from ron lippett and it's become an integral piece of of how we work so in 94 paul and i finished our first formal vision which was zingerman's 2009 uh, in 2006 and seven, we wrote the next one, which was for 2020, and now we're working on the next one for 2030, and I don't know what'll be in it because we're still working on it. And in the intervening years, we started to put visioning into place with really all of our work. Once we have the long-term vision, then we do planning annually. Um, but I, I mean, there's part of me that's sort of thinking about we would be better off with quarterly, but... Mm -hmm. You know, we do an annual plan, and, and it's worked pretty well. I mean, and we revisit it regularly through the year. When you do that, is it um, – or each – is each company doing their own, and then you're bringing those together? Yeah, or? so we, we agree on – I don't know that we have the perfect way. I mean, I think it's like anybody else. You, some things work, some things don't. But we agree on a few 
themes that might be relevant for everybody. Uh, they're not necessarily really the lead themes because like at the Bakehouse this year, uh, we're working on uh, called the Grain Commission. So we're doing our own milling, starting to do our own milling. And it's a really great, you know, old school innovation in quotes. Um, but that's really relevant for them. It's not relevant at the creamery, right? right. Which is right up the block. So it, in, in the, in the broad sense, we might come up with stuff like we're writing a statement of beliefs based on the work of the new book. So that impacts everybody. And then each business has its own vision and then its own plan for what it's going to focus on. And how much of your job now is in the CEO visioning realm? Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, let me step back and ask it more broadly. So how do you spend your time? What's your what's your job description these days? (laughs) Uh, I do a lot of things. I mean, I, I the visioning work is really done by everybody. I mean, and everybody in quotes, because clearly there's people who choose not to get involved. But the point of really our approach going back to one of your earlier questions I think is that we try to teach everybody how to lead from the minute that they come to work Mm. and that we try to teach them how to run a business from the minute Mm. that they come to work and the alternative which is what most organizations it's true and nonprofits as well are doing is teaching them how to do their job Mm. and I would suggest when they're only learning how to do their job, the decisions that they make are often really poor because they're missing most of the information that they need. So by teaching everybody to lead, then, you know, yeah, sure, you get conflict, but there's conflict anyway. It's just conflict between leaders, right? Um, So I don't know. My day, you know, I I, I journal every morning. Uh, I run every afternoon or early evening, depending on the day and the weather. And uh, in between, it could be anything from meetings to teaching to tasting was kind of happening all the time. Yeah. And then usually, as many people, if they're local, know I end up working the last hour or two, whatever, working on the floor at the roadhouse pouring water, which I, I like because it's very reground, you know, grounds me in the basics. And I think it's really important to, like, see the customer's face when they're eating the food, deal with customer complaints, pick up the crayons off the floor that the kid dropped, uh, you know, pick up the paper towels in the bathroom when, you know, people couldn't quite get it into the garbage can. You know, and I, I mean, that's really a lot of the work. And if you only do that work, then I think you lose the vision and the long-term perspective and the process development. But if, you know, if one is sitting only in the office that 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 loses connection to mm-hmm. reality too. Yeah, I took uh, uh, my kids to the roadhouse for a birthday in May, and mm-hmm. uh, you coming around and pouring the waters was really a wonderful opportunity for me to emphasize to them that um, owning a business, you still have to stay connected to the business and the idea of servant leadership. I mean, that's it's all. Yeah, I mean, together. I think it's yeah that that is actually one of the outcomes that I didn't intend, but it happens pretty regularly. It's like people are like. He owns the business, and like yeah. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> and they're like, "See, you have to keep working." Right, right. You know, but I, I, I mean, I think the it. truth is, you don't have to. I mean, no, a lot of don't, people right. don't. But I, I think you know, if you don't like the work that you're doing, it's difficult to be successful at anything. And I think that's why I got into it was cooking and and working the floor both. And I, I think I cook at home. We cook at home every night and. You know, so it's being reconnected to the food, reconnected to the people doing the work, and reconnected to the customers constantly is really helpful. Hmm. Do Do you have an innovation process or a number of innovation processes at play in that <laughs> That's a good question. So uh, 
I wrote about creativity in part three of the book, and it came out of uh, a lot of people asking me to, in the whatever year that was, t- it was, I think it was like 2011 or 10 or something, I don't know, people asking me to come speak on creativity, and I'm like, I don't speak on creativity, <laughs> and they're like, come on, how can you not speak on creativity? Look right. at, you speak all the time, and look what you guys do. I'm like, I don't know, we don't have any process, and, and they're like, well, who's in charge of innovation? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> And you're like, well, how, how do you guys innovate? I'm like, like when do you do it? Is, is it like Google and you have like 20% innovation time? I'm like, no. And I'm like, well, people are like, well, when do people innovate? I'm like, all day. Oh, yeah, all the time. So I, I really, what I have come to believe is like going back to what I said earlier, and this is a belief, but is that everybody's already creative and they got a million ideas. The problem isn't most organizations, they crush the ideas out of them and they get them to their ideas, they still remain creative, but they put it to work in their band or in their church or, mm-hmm. you know, with their kids or, or whatever. But the business loses the creative opportunity to, to, to capitalize literally and figuratively on their ability. So I think by doing stuff like open book, by doing our bottom line change process, which is a process that involves as many people as possible and designing the change before it happens, then all of those things can 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 come to the fore much more effectively. It's certainly not perfect, but the idea is to keep bringing out the creativity all the time. And then, you know, we've always had a focus on continuous improvement. And then as we do more with Lean, then it systematizes what was already the intent, you know, from the get-go. Uh, our bottom line change process, I didn't bring that pamphlet with me, but there's a separate freestanding one on that. And it's basically a change process that we teach to everybody. And so the idea is that rather than sort of the old school parental patriarchal, you know, here's we're really progressive. So we have a suggestion box and then you put it in. And if we implement your idea, we'll give you $50. Like, I don't think that that's evil. But what I'd rather do is teach everybody who has an idea how to lead the implementation and a a not uncommon response from a frontline person who, you know, I or we would ask to do that is like, well, people aren't going to listen to me. I'm like, dude, they don't listen to me either. (laughs) It's called leadership. This is how we make it happen. And here's a recipe to help you do the leading. And my job becomes to help you learn how and then lead the implementation, not to figure out for you what Mm -hmm. the rest of the company should do and then make them do it in some mythically top-down way. Well, as you have four books, books now uh, describing that leadership is actually a very complex thing. One Mm -hmm. of the ways that I think of leadership is that it's providing the guidance and energy to Mm -hmm. get the organization to do something that it wouldn't have done on its own otherwise. Yeah, that's a nice way to describe it. I I write about energy management a lot, actually. I learned about it from a woman uh, whose name is Anise Cavanaugh, A-N-E-S-E. She's actually going to be in Ann Arbor later next fall teaching but her uh you can look her up online but her her work is basically around energy management and i started to think about ceo as chief energy officer Mm -hmm. because i think really the energy is a huge piece of what's going on and you know to the some of the earlier points i've come to believe when we live in harmony with nature with those natural laws when we honor human nature by treating everybody like the intelligent person that they are then energy is better Yep. But that becomes the work, and it fits well with, I think, the description that you just gave. Um, let's see. I guess changing gears a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, is there something that you can think of that you would do differently if you had to do it over again? As you think Yeah, there's a million of them, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I would Anything have got up 20 out? minutes earlier this morning. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I... 
I mean, there's a million things. I, I, I think the point is that we're learning as we go. Mm -hmm. We're all learning as we go. Uh, I wrote a little piece that's not in any of the books yet for, about humility because I got asked last spring to speak at a, uh, I guess it's actually 18 months ago, I got asked to speak at a little symposium at the University on Humility, and so I... I was sort of like, I don't know anything about humility, like, yeah. <laughs> but Jamie Vanderbroek, who runs the program over there, used to work for us, and her husband worked for us, and they're super nice, and, you know, I was like, okay, I'm just going to say yes, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I got six months to figure it out. So, anyway, I went and did the talk, and then I ended up writing about what I learned, and, uh, you know, we're, none of us really know what we're doing, mm -hmm. and and I think this is one of the fallacies of the leadership trade i'm not talking about you but at large which is you know people having this you know the leader should never show fear the leader knows you know the strong leader knows exactly where to take the company and it's just it's it's i'm not gonna curse but it's such yeah. you know whatever <laughs> and uh I, I i think understanding that none of us truly know what we're doing that we're all making mistakes all the time and it's really more about recovery from mistakes and, you know, I like to say what's true. I mean, you know, LeBron James misses one out of two shots, right? Yep. Uh, the key is that they win the game in the end. And, you know, they all then go watch game film and they all go figure out what to do better. And I think that's the same for us. Like, we're all making mistakes all the time. The key is to systemically be able to review what went wrong and what went right and then be able to build on what went right and reduce the impact of what went wrong. So from a real practical perspective, how do you manage mistakes? When, when does that review happen or how does Yeah, so we've woven it a lot into the open book management work. So at the huddles every week, which each department or business has their own, uh, they'll go over what we, uh, I didn't bring the little service book either, but in there it talks about what we call code reds and code greens. The name doesn't really matter. It's just that we have a form, uh, which was, all on paper in the beginning and it's of course of course morphed into being online but where we write up customer you know complaints criticisms and requests on the code red and then compliments on the code green and then we go through them and we look for trends and then you know with the focus like the work around kata and stuff as we do more of that then that gives another process to be able to tackle take on whatever you know a particular problem that's coming up and, you know, and then within that, I think, too, is to be able to teach people just to think like leaders again in the moment. So from early on, I don't even know what year, but from early on, Paul and I, you know, basically just started telling everybody we hired, you're authorized to do whatever you need to do for the customer, no matter what. And that's still true today. And so, you know, yes to the systems, yes to the structure, yes to all these processes. And uh, within that, if we hired you tomorrow, then two days a day later you're on the floor you might know next to nothing but we've already told you if the customer's unhappy and you're the only one there figure it out mm -hmm. and hopefully you're not the only one there so we can provide you support but but just authorizing people from day one to be able to take action is a big thing yeah yeah um i'm i'm gonna go back to your comment about uh, leaders don't n know everything and that that uh, dic dictatorial kind of uh, process mm-hmm I like Brene Brown and mm -hmm. vulnerability. Have yeah. you either written yep. any of that, or do you bring that into your uh, I quote her a few times. I mean, I think it's very good, and I, I think uh, I agree with her. She's very funny mm -hmm. uh, when she speaks, and uh, I think there's a lot to it. I mean, I think that, you know, for me it was 
part three of the book is on managing ourselves. So really a lot of that's my own self-work and, you know, learning that it was, well, A, raised as an American male. I'm stereotyping, but, you know, when I started going to therapy and the therapist would go like, well, how do you feel? And I go like, um, nervous. He's like, that's not really a feeling. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, so like not even having a language around Correct. feelings and emotions, yeah. you know, which makes it impossible to communicate effectively. And then, you know, there's so many beliefs or mythologies or whatever around leaders, and we hit on a couple of them. But, you know, like you, if one goes with standard business stuff, it's you're supposed to look strong and on top of it all the time. And, you know, I think walking around going, woe is me, I don't know what I'm doing, that's not helpful either. But I think there's a healthy way to communicate with vulnerability, which is what Brene Brown gets into. And I, I think that that works. Like, I'm struggling with this. We need to make a decision by four o'clock. What do y'all think right. is, is a healthy and appropriate way to get into it? Well, this isn't the direction that I figured we'd go, but I'm, I'm a big fan of therapy in general. Yeah. I think it's been incredibly yeah. beneficial to my practice as yep. a business and things like that. Can we talk about that a Absolutely. little Absolutely. Talk about it all you want. Um, I, I wrote a whole book about it. Is that right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not per se about therapy, but I talk about going to therapy. And uh, it's all about self-management. And, yeah. of course, it's it's probably the least glamorous you know, book, but it's the one we all need. And it's part three in the series, and a not uncommon uh, comment that I hear is like, well, you should have written that first. And I'm like, well, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but doesn't everybody need to know how to manage themselves before they open a business? And I'm like, they do, but none of us are interested in learning it right. until we screwed exactly. up enough stuff that we realize we're the problem, <laughs> not everybody else. So yes, in theory, it would be fabulous for every one of us to have read that and mastered it at 17. But, you know, I had no clue until I was 30 or whatever and started to screw up a lot of parts of my life unwittingly, uh, and much to the detriment of people around me, nothing too dramatic that every, you know, you probably haven't done the same. But yeah. uh, but then realizing out of that that really, you know, the business, the organization is essentially a mirror of us, right? And so if we want to grow and the health and improve the organization, it starts with us. And I, I'm all about Jim Collins and getting better people on the bus and all that stuff. But it's, if you're driving, like who cares who's on the bus? So it's it's really the internal work is the, is the most important, I think. Yeah, and I think um, I've experienced that it's not just a mirror, but sometimes it's a megaphone mm -hmm. or actually, a, mm -hmm. you know, it, it kind of really yeah. Um, yeah. magnifies what we yeah. what we have going on inside ourselves. Yeah, and Edgar Schein points out in that essay on stages of organizational uh, development and, and the corollary around leadership development is that at, at the second stage, so if you get through the startup and you get into the building, that the leader's neuroses basically become embedded into the organization, mm -hmm. and that's totally true. Uh, I think diversity helps, and so having diversity among the leadership from all angles helps to balance that or, or mitigate it you know so paul and i in, in some ways are totally different uh which can cause conflict <laughs> in the moment but i think in the long run is healthy uh but yeah it's it's really learning to manage myself so i mentioned earlier i mean i journal every morning which i never would have done if i wouldn't have gone to therapy and my therapist uh richard Kempter said you know he suggested that i start to d journal and I you know was like come on you know like high school <laughs> girls keep diaries like I'm not yeah. gonna do that 
and you know he pointed out which it's embarrassing i didn't know what the word meant but he pointed out i was very good at ruminating which mm. it's embarrassing because we sell all those cheeses made by cows <laughs> with, made with cow's milk and of course cows ruminate yeah. by chewing their cud so you know he, he was right i mean i was go around and around in my head over and over and over again on the same thing which is exceedingly unhelpful mm. crazy making mm. and yeah. and unproductive use of everything including my own energy and then as you said, the megaphone, everybody's energy around me, right? So uh, I did start journaling, and I swear by it, and I journal 99.8% uh, of the time mm. every morning. Uh, I just do it 10, 15 minutes mm. to clear my mind. There's no structure. There's no format. I hardly ever reread it. Mm -hmm. It's just really to clear my mind, and I kind of look at it like stretching before I run. Right. It doesn't guarantee no injury, but it has a Im positive impact on reducing the odds of injury. So, um, was there a time when you and Paul ha had to give up control in some kind of meaningful way <laughs> compared to w what you had before? You know, there, there was yeah. some kind of barrier you had to get across, and then once you were across it, you were fine. Um, that's a really sounds like a good mythology, but I don't yeah. think it's that easy. But I, you know, I'm, I'm at some point I'm going to write the essay on the other 12 natural laws of business that I didn't know about when I wrote the first 12 and the top one's going to be, it's all out of control. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is one of the more interesting phenomenon or beliefs that the world at large has put into people's heads, which is they're supposed to be in control. Mm -hmm. So going back to therapy, it's, I'm stereotyping, but men in particular were taught we're supposed to be in control of our emotions. We're, you know, conversations are all you know we got to get that cost under control we got to get this under control we got to get that guy under control we got to get this problem under control and it's like we don't have control mm -hmm. <laughs> over anything uh and you know when i teach we have a little two-day zinc train seminar on managing ourselves which i teach and i i just tell people like i'm going to demonstrate to you right now that it's all out of control mm -hmm. How many people in the room have done something that while you are still engaged in the act of doing it, you already knew you shouldn't be doing it, but you went ahead and did it anyway. And everybody always raises their hand. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so if you can't even stop yourself from doing what you already knew in advance you shouldn't have done, why would you imagine that you could control the employee from doing uh -huh. something wrong, that you could control the vendor, that you could control traffic to keep the vendor from coming late, that you could control the weather and wherever that your crop supply comes from like it's all out of control all we have is varying degrees of influence um so i i think it's really more about accepting that reality and then learning to influence effectively than it is about letting go of control because you actually didn't have it in the first place <laughs> yeah all my um all my um, central nervous system was firing as I was listening to you say there's no control. <laughs> like so, then what do you do as a manager? But what you but but then you gave the answer, which is it's about influence. Yeah, and I think this is something that I see, especially rising leaders and and, and younger people struggling with, is the idea that um, they just want to be given control and then they can tell people. And right, it's like, which is crazy. I'm like, yeah. okay, let's say I have control, but people don't listen to me either. Right. Like, do you think I told somebody to make a mistake on your order? No. So, I, I, again, I like to go back to the metaphor of farming and stuff because, like, everybody knows the farmer doesn't have control. Uh, they're doing the best they can. They have a lot of tools, a lot of lo things that they can implement, you know, supplements to put in the soil, ways to manage, you know, insect infestations, or et cetera. But they, 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 don't, they don't have control. And uh, one of the interesting things I started to realize, so the anarchists were reacting a lot to the industrial model. 
and the dehumanization that came with mm-hmm. that, right? And and it's interesting though that almost all the metaphors for business are still machines, right? Right. Instead and, of agrarian. Totally. And yeah. so in the new book, I started to work, and I've continued to work on it since. But is this uh, metaphor of an ecosystem where I mentioned beliefs as the root system, but culture is the soil. Because if you study organic farming, sustainable farming is always feed to soil, feed to soil, mm-hmm. feed to soil, uh, where generosity is moisture or water, where hope is the sun, uh, and, and purpose right. is air, because without it, nothing good is going to happen. And I started to put this all together because it really reframes the whole thing from this, you know, got to keep the gears running. And, yeah. you know, because in, in the machine model, you, you have much more control. But when you understand you're in nature and, like, we don't control the weather, what we can do is try to manage for it so that we have ways for water to run off when there's too much or to get water when there isn't enough. But we can't control it. Well, and I think um, the agrarian lifestyle is much closer to the experience that a lot of people are having in their work than the industrial lifestyle. Yeah, and yeah, totally. The industrial model basically implies that you could drop down your store in whatever spot you want, and it's the same. Uh, and of course, in nature, that makes little sense. Although the reality is that monocropping or monoculture is basically that, like we're going to grow 10,000 acres of corn. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean the people who are trying to do it are evil or trying to do the wrong thing, but it basically is not about the place or the soil or whatever. It's, you know, minimally managed by that, but it's mostly like, this is what we're going to do. And I think with business, uh, you know, with all due respect to franchise, whatever, I mean, they're just dropping down a store, you know, that's the same in rural, you know, Massachusetts as it is in Montana, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I have a client that is considering how and whether to grow, and one of the, part of the question was, what is the soul of the company and how do we want to preserve mm-hmm. that? We use small giants as a mechanism mm-hmm. to talk about that, but um, can you talk about kind of the role of soul in business because I think that's where you're yeah. kind of going with it's, that. It's funny I've been I've been I haven't really said this out loud to anybody but I've been thinking about uh, the moon in that me- ecosystem mm-hmm. metaphor the moon as your soul or mm-hmm. your spirit because like with biodynamic farming it's always plant when the moon is full mm-hmm. uh, the moon doesn't get a lot of headlines but you know we know it pulls the tides and it has all this you know power and it's mostly happening when people aren't looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true of soul and spirit. So I, I, the, the epilogue of the new book is also is my belief that business is like art, right? And so in the same way that great music or great poetry or whatever is always, you know, a really great uh, manifestation of the soul, the spirit of the person, the man or the woman that's writing it or that's playing it or whatever, and that the better you get at it, the more you go straight from the soul and not through the filters of what your music teacher told you you should do or what somebody else is doing. It's really coming from the heart. And I think that's true of business too. Um, The visioning process that we use because of the way we do it is actually a really great way, I think, to tap that. I've come to believe that almost every human being knows what they want. Mm-hmm. but society's pressure to conform is so intense and there's so you know so much uh the more you read kind of the worse it gets because although i'm a big reader it's just like oh my god i could do this well wait maybe we should do that or look what they're that we get paralyzed and that in our soul and our spirit you know we already know the future mm-hmm. that we want to create to a great extent and we use uh, a hot pen process which we learned from stash 
Kazmierski, who I mentioned earlier, which basically is free writing if you're an English major. And by free writing without stopping, it overcomes the tendency of the intellect to override the heart because your hand, your brain can't keep up with your hand. Uh, And it's quite amazing what comes out. That's really cool. Um, So I love the ecosystem, all that that you described. I want to go back to your idea of influence. Mm -hmm. How does influence happen? What, like, what's the training or the guidance Mm -hmm. for how to make people better at being influencers? Well, I think it's all the stuff that's in here. I mean, it's it's happening all the time, whether we're cognizant of not or not. Um, you know, it's as simple as our word choices, our energy management, our eye contact. You know, and I, I fall short regularly. I mean, I know, but it's just trying to get up. You know, whatever. Like you made a bad pass and you got sacked. You got to get up and <laughs> run another play. Um, and you know, so so all of it. I think as we grow, teaching becomes more and more important. Um, I think treating people with dignity and respect and encouraging them to go for greatness in everything they do is a really positive message. I think servant leadership, uh, which you referenced earlier, you know, sends a positive message. I think encouraging people to have conversations, you know, which is hard for me as a shy introvert who doesn't really want to, like, I'm fine now because it's just two of us in a closed room. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't see any of the people that are listening. but. You know, but I, I think it's awkward, but it be, it becomes more and more important as the organization grows. And then understanding that different people learn in different ways. And so, you know, we have some people who, if I give them this book, they're super jazzed. And there's other people that don't read it all and they're going to flip out. Uh, you know, sometimes it's connecting them with other people. Uh, I, I mean, a really simple thing that I, I try to do, I'm sure I don't do it perfectly, but it's just like if you come into the deli or the roadhouse or whatever and an employee comes by, I'm going to introduce you to them because they're, they matter. Right. And, and yet I got to tell you that rarely happens, right. That Mm -hmm. the leader pauses their conversation to introduce their guest or whatever to a frontline person. Well, one of the things that small giants said is that, um, part of the soul of the businesses in small giants is that they care about the whole human. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. Anecdote yeah. Absolutely. And it, and it, and and honestly, that's what anarchism was about: was the the the, the honoring every individual as a as a potentially great person, as opposed to the dehumanization of the industrial mm-hmm. model. So it fits with that too. I was on your website reading some of the bios, and I saw a reference to the path to partner or path to partnership. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, so uh, when we, Paul and I wrote the 2009 vision in 1994, the idea was to create this community of businesses where each business would be a Zingerman's business, but each would have its own unique specialty. So this is going back to the idea of soul and spirit, of which mm-hmm. replication is sort of the opposite. Uh and that each business would have a managing partner in it because our experience was that the further you got from the owner generally the less the spirit mm-hmm. and energy was manifested positively and so uh, and then early on we kind of realized the hard way that it was easier to find ideas than it was to find the people who wanted to implement mm-hmm. the ideas and so it's evolved enormously over the last 20 years, but the idea was 25 years, but the idea was to create, it's basically an interview process, but a a path to partnership because we want everybody who joins the organization tomorrow in any role, part-time, full-time, 17, 70, it doesn't matter, 
to know that they could become a partner in a Zingerman's business and that it's not tied to, you know, I'm all for education, but it's not tied to that. It's not tied to ethnicity. It's not tied to race. It's not tied to gender. It's not tied to income level. It's just tied to your idea and your passion for that idea and your willingness to do the work over a long period of time to help make that happen. And the path to partner then outlines some criteria by which to yeah, evaluate it, that? Yeah, it, 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 you know, it gets more detailed every time we screw something up mm -hmm. then we try to add something <laughs> to fix the process uh yeah so it has you know now it's fairly evolved i don't know maybe it'll be more or less evolved down the road but you know so it has stuff about we want you to have led a bottom line change project to show your leadership we want you to have taken our leadership development program we want you to have worked in the organization for at least a year you know stuff like that mm -hmm. have conversations with the other partners you know so it, it's just trying to steer people towards what's the right thing to do but not just assuming they're going to figure it out on their own yeah. and then because the process is really driven by the prospective partner then it's giving them clarity of what they need to do to get there and then the pace at which it moves is a lot driven by them hmm. um i have a last question but before i ask you that it's uh, the second it's, to last question it's the, <laughs> the second to last question is do you have anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be interesting well i got a million things I probably <laughs> uh let's see what should we talk about we talked about that well i i, I will say just because i've been working a lot with the lava d uh folks that I think the anarchist stuff is super interesting and to people don't know what it is so I'm going to just yeah, take great. two seconds to actually get clear on it so the the sort of common conception of it is you know rock throwing destruction nihilism crazy whatever and that's just completely you know not reality that's sort of like saying all Christianity is about the crusades and conquering and killing I mean it's it happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there were certainly people who were Christians that did that, but I think it would be inappropriate, Unfair. ineffective, and unhelpful to actually put everyone who believes in that group into the same class as something that happened 500 years ago. Uh, so what anarchism really informed me, of, and I've started to study it a lot more in the last 10 years, is very parallel to progressive business. Mm -hmm. It's really about the belief that people are intelligent, the belief that people can figure things out on their own. And I don't mean without help, but mm -hmm. that we can figure it out as a team. Uh, the belief that people are capable of greatness, the belief that everybody has a soul and a spirit that's capable of doing something special and that life is about bringing out that artistic mm -hmm. sense from everybody. And so when I started to look at like a lot of the old stuff that I had read it, while I was in schools, I, I hadn't looked at it in decades, right? And I got asked to speak at the Jewish Studies Department by Deborah Dash Moore, who, run, who ran the department at the time, and she titled my talk Rye Bread and Anarchism because uh -huh. she knew I had studied it, and then I had written this long essay on Jewish rye bread the year before. So when I was getting ready to go talk there, I was like, you know, I haven't looked at those books in forever, and at business conferences, nobody knows who the anarchists are, so I'm safe, but in there, like, I'm going to look like an idiot because I'm going to say the wrong thing. So I started to reread it. And it really blew my mind because it was all very parallel to all the progressive business stuff that I had been studying to be a better leader and be a more effective at work, right? Self-organizing work teams, yeah. anarchism. Yeah. Uh, I just read a book uh, by Frederick Laloux, very good, called Reinventing Organizations. It's about the next stage you, you would like. It's about the next stage of organizational development. 
one of the key things is self-management. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a second one is working with purpose, uh, and I'm trying to. And the third one is about self-actualization. So it's like this is what anarchism was all about. Wow. And you know, Bo Burlingham, who you mentioned from Small Giants, who wrote the forward for part one, said he also actually had involvement with anarchism early in his life and he said the anarchists had the right yo-yo but the wrong string <laughs> and that they didn't understand how to put it in place but they knew that the industrialization and the dehumanization was wrong mm -hmm. and now we're paying the price for that in many ways environmentally ecologically with business with organizations and trying to bring back what was there all along which is this creative human spirit mm -hmm. that i think is in every kid and every adult and every retiree it's in every cynic it's in everybody right and so for me it's been super interesting and one of the big pieces and then I'll let you go to the last question is that it helped me to realize how much the hierarchical thinking was causing problems mm. and I really hadn't even realized even I do it right but the hierarchical thinking tells you that there's a hierarchy right something's always better and so with without trying to be critical like the questions are constant what's your biggest mistake what's the most important thing and they're all looking for this top thing and then the problem is it tunes out 90 percent of the other information and i actually heard uh, general uh, mccrystal uh, speak a year and a half ago who said exactly the same thing and i'm thinking okay if this is coming from a well-known successful general in the u.s military there's something to this yeah yeah I want to talk a little bit about that, actually, because um, when I think of priorities, I don't think of it as uh, top-down or anything mm -hmm. like that. I think there's a limited number of resources Absolutely. that we have to devote. Right, and right. in order to put it toward the most pressing things or the most the best opportunity, you have to prioritize. There's And there's nothing wrong with prioritizing that. But I think it's different when it's internally driven right. than the belief that there's already this thing mm -hmm. that's better, which leads you to the belief there's this person that's better and that because they're the CEO, they're better. And I think those things are causing a lot of problem, without question. I mean, uh, I was just reading the Michael Porter quote that said strategy is mostly about deciding what you aren't going to do. Yeah. And I, I think the visioning, you know, does that for us also. So without question, I mean, I, I'm not going to watch a soccer game today. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not down on soccer. Right, I just right. It's not interesting <laughs> to me, and I have a lot of other things I want to do. So I, I think prioritization from the heart that's authentic and aligned with your vision and values is hugely important. But I think the belief that there's a right way to prioritize is leading people to a lot of self-doubt that if they don't go to therapy, have yeah. a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> All right, so so as we think about uh, Zingerman's 2030, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, do you have any predictions for us of what that might include? And um, oh. you obviously have talked about a lot of the foundation yeah. of the company, and I'm sure some of that will survive. But w w what do you think is going to be there? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, because we work by consensus at the partner level. I mean, I have my beliefs, and I have what I would like to see, but. I, I don't I, I don't I think it would be presumptuous to assume everybody I mean they aren't all going to agree with me I already know that and I don't mean that negatively it's just we're all different people with different priorities um, so I, I guess stay tuned yeah well <laughs> do you think that anything in the books is going to be threatened as you uh, you know over the next 10 years uh, it, I hope not. This I may mean, be the wrong word it's it's going to need to change fundamentally and, and, um, and not be relevant anymore 
I hope not. I don't yeah. think so. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think back through, but I, you know, I mean, I've written the books from the perspective that this is my belief. These are my priorities. I'm not telling you that this is everybody at Zingerman's does this stuff. Even, you know, Paul and I don't agree on everything, but these basic practices and learnings, I believe, are applicable to everybody. Uh, and I think really they're about a way to live. Yeah. not yeah. about business and I think that's really one of the reasons why what we do imperfect though it is has worked is because I've come to realize like what most business you know stuff is teaching people is actually kind of antithetical to what they need to do in their life and it's exhausting and I think what this is doing is teaching people how to live as whole human beings and that's true at work and it's true out of work so if they learn energy management at the roadhouse, they're going to use it at home. If they learn visioning while they're working at the deli, they're going to use it at home. If they get a job as a baker and they learn about the impact of beliefs on their life, they're going to use it with their kid. You know, so it's really about creating a holistic existence. And then within that, within that frame is also to understand that, you know, uh, in, in agriculture, it's often said like in, in commercial agriculture, the pesticides don't stop at the fence line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they flow through the soil. So there's a lot of places where people are leaving their work angry, feeling demeaned, very frustrated, rage filled even. And it's like they don't just get in their car to go home or get on the bus to go home and it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> they take it with them. And then that goes into the community because they're being waited on by somebody on the way home when they stop at the store who's picking up that rage or their kids picking it up or their significant other. So the idea is to try to, you know, imperfectly, but to create a healthy setting where people feel better so they go home and they teach their kids the same stuff and they use it and when they're, you know, in a, in a project at school or whatever, it, it all comes out more positively. Amazing stuff. I, so thank you, Ari, for starting off our podcast series. Um, thank with you. I didn't know I was first. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we wanted to start out with a bang, so uh, so you let us do that. Okay. So thanks well, a lot. I'm and honored. Thank if you. people want, I know I know they yeah. can go to zingermanspress.com. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But any any other places that you'd send them? Yeah, so uh, my email is ari at zingermans.com, so people can email me. And actually, I have a, I'm working on a visual uh, drawing of the ecosystem Great. so it's still in the works but nice. if people want to see it they can email me or just send questions uh, the books we actually uh, do all our own design and we print them here in town so we're sort of off the grid it's kind of the farm-to-table version of mm -hmm. publishing um, so zingermanspress.com zingtrain.com has the training seminars and the books and then the books are in all the businesses and we ship them around the country actually around the world great all right, good luck with the vision, good luck with the business. and thank you, you too. Thank you. you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Spark.Grow, a podcast series brought to you by Ann Arbor Spark. To learn more about Spark, visit annarborusa.org. And thank you to the Ann Arbor District Library as our recording partner. You can learn more about their resources at aadl.org.